Merry Christmas. You guys sound like y'all are tired. Well, uh, this is the Christmas season where we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And uh, we're going to be thinking about this birth of Christ and, and what it means. It reminded me of uh, just the nature and the process of, of what it means to have a baby. And if you've got any family that are older uh, and you start talking to them about the kind of pressures and expectations that you have on having a baby today, it's different than it was 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, so for instance, there, there are a couple of things that we do today if, if you have a baby uh, that did not used to be the case. One is uh, we often have what? A gender reveal party, right? And uh, some of you are like, that is so weird. Uh, but the gender reveal party is the party where you show what gender your baby's going to be. I still remember uh, when we were having uh, Mia, uh, we, we planned this gender reveal party. And the plan was there was a ball and a bat, and I would take a swing at it, and there was powder in it. It would just poof out into this big thing of smoke, and the smoke would either be pink or blue, depending on what the gender was. Uh, now, before we did this, Gia had fun by showing me this video of a loop of a guy who took 20 swings missing the ball. Uh, I don't know if he ever actually hit the ball, uh, but I had that in my mind as I was going for my first swing, and I made contact all by myself. Uh, she was three feet away and uh, underhand, so, I mean, it, was, it would have been really bad. But the wind was blowing, so um, it was pretty athletically amazing what I did. But the other thing that you might uh, notice is that you also send out like baby invitations um, where your or baby announcements, uh, usually a picture of you with your wife as you're expecting. And as you do that, uh, you're basically just letting people know that there's a big moment in your life that you want them to celebrate with and, and pray for you about. Now, for those of you who uh, might be expecting and um, you're, you're thinking about uh, what is to come, you haven't set your invitations out yet, I want to encourage you to try not to do anything weird. Now, here's what I mean. It, it would be weird if you were having a baby and you were to actually put the picture of a friend of yours who was about to have a baby who hadn't announced it yet. And you announce their baby on your baby invitation. Don't do that. That would be weird. And it would be super weird if you were to do this. And in, in making this announcement, you were, you were to say... And let me just say that this is really just the opening act for the featured presentation, which is the birth of our baby, who is utterly unique. There has never been a baby like this before. And what's fascinating is, is, is that would, yeah, be weird and insulting, but that's kind of the way that Luke's gospel reads. You'll notice that as you look through your Bible, there's this white page often that's blank that's separating the New Testament from the Old Testament. Now, that white page often communicates 400 years of silence that uh, came about where God did not send special revelation from his last prophet to the announcement of Jesus Christ and his birth. And when Luke speaks and when this silence is broken, it's actually broken with two miracles, which are two miraculous births. And the way that Luke opens his gospel is actually not with the announcement of the birth of Jesus, but the birth of John. And this announcement is miraculous. He is uh, going to be given uh, as a child to Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. Uh, she is older in age. She is supposed to be, on, be beyond childbearing years. And yet the Lord is going to open her womb and she will have a child. It's going to be a miracle. 
It's going to be a miracle a lot like the miracles of the Old Testament. Uh, You'll remember there have been some famous people, famous women, who were barren saints who gave birth in the Old Testament. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, and, and others. And so this child is going to be special in line with those great Old Testament figures. And yet, as you read along, and as we'll read this morning, what we'll find is, is that this grand miracle that sets John the Baptist up as being one of the great, and actually the great, uh, the greatest one born of a woman. Uh, in fact, Jesus himself says in, in Luke seven twenty eight, among those born of a woman, there's none greater than John. But John's miraculous birth only prepares the way for a more miraculous birth, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to think about this morning. We're looking at Luke's account of Jesus' birth in Luke 1, 26 to 28. And here we're going to see, this is our big idea, that Jesus Christ was truly born of the Virgin Mary who was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. We're going to be thinking about that this morning. Now, you'll notice first, in verses 26 to 28, the context is being set. And we find a heavenly messenger visiting earthly obscurity. It's a nice way to put it. Uh, We find this heavenly messenger coming to a a location that you would not expect to find someone of this nobility. Now notice, new Christians who would have received this gospel would have really been, I think, dialed in to Luke's coupling in this text of a kind of transcendent and heavenly reality that is coupled with an obscure and earthly reality. And and what he's doing is he's really creating a kind of dramatic tension for us. You're you're kind of wondering, what is going on here? This is what we find in verses 26 to 27 as Luke is building this dramatic tension. He says in verses 26 to 27 this, in the sixth month, The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. At first sight, that might seem somewhat innocuous, not like a big deal, but we need to pay attention to the details. Now, as you read the sixth month, this is actually framing and weaving the birth of Jesus into the context of the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy with baby John. Now, Gabriel's that famed archangel that you'll remember uh, coming and visiting Daniel back in Daniel 8.16. I, I think that we need to just be aware that sometimes when we read things in the Bible, we have a view that has been shaped more by movies then it has probably been shaped by the Bible itself. And if you get all of your angelology from movies, then you probably have somewhat of a domesticated view of angels. Uh, For instance, I've been watching a lot of uh, Christmas movies with my family as of late. We kind of always have one kind of going in the background, just sort of setting the, the Christmas spirit. And we recently, once again, watched a famous Christmas movie it's a Wonderful Life. Anybody seen that movie before? Like a hundred times? 
And you'll remember that there's an angel in that movie, Clarence Oddbody, who's trying to earn his wings. Uh, You'll remember he says, every time you hear a bell ring, it means that some angel just got his wings. Now, that's not biblical, okay? And uh, angels don't earn wings, and there's just, like, that's not the place to go for your angelology. And even the, the person that plays the role of the guy that's trying to be an angel just looks like a, a real humble, kind of sweet guy that you'd never be intimidated by. But when Daniel, the prophet who went camping in a den of lions, rather than not obeying God, saw Gabriel, this angel. Daniel says, I was frightened and fell on my face. Kind of thing where, you know, when some people are scared, it's okay. Like on a flight, if the person next to you is scared, you're fine. If the flight attendant and the, and the pilot start to put on, you know, a jumpsuit and, uh, you know, a parachute, you know, things, there's a problem. When Daniel's scared, we ought to be scared. Angels must have been terrified. You'll notice that in just the verses above, an angel, Gabriel, he appears first to Zechariah. And Zechariah, the priest, who you would think would be used to seeing spiritual things, experiencing spiritual things, has not experienced what he found uh, that day in the temple, which was Gabriel. And it says there that he too was terrified before the vision of this angel. But notice here that, that God sent in this scene this heavenly creature to the obscure city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was, a city would would have been really kind of um, stretching it a bit. Uh, This word for city could also mean village. It was more of a village. Uh, We believe there was somewhere between like 200 and 1,600 people there at the time. It was a very small, obscure place off the beaten path. And in fact, if you were to think about it, uh, Judeans who were to the south looked at Galileans where Nazareth was in the north as kind of backwoodsy with a people that had funny accents, kind of had a draw to them. Uh, think Jethro from the Beverly Hillbillies. They, they really didn't have a lot of respect for these people. That's why when Philip later is talking to Nathaniel and he says, Nathaniel, you need to know that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. In John 1.46, Nathanael responds asking, can anything good come from Nazareth? But here we find that God, our glorious creator, who is high above all things, sends a heavenly messenger to this obscure village to meet Mary. And you'll notice in our text that Mary's only claim to fame is that she is a virgin. In fact, our text really wants us to know that because it repeats it twice. Luke says twice that she was a virgin. That means that she has had no sexual relations. That was really typical of betrothed women of this day. They usually entered betrothal just after puberty, so she was probably a young teenager. And and what we find is, is that uh, this betrothal, if, if you're not familiar with it in the Bible, it, it's very much like a kind of engagement with more teeth. In other words, if you were betrothed, it could only be broken by divorce or by death. That was the only way to get out of it. And if you were 
betrothed to someone, you still yet had not sexually consummated the relationship. So this relationship was still awaiting a fuller fulfillment and the finality of marriage. And Mary, here you'll notice that she is betrothed to Joseph. And we all know of him, uh, all we know of him in this text is that he lives in Nazareth, which might say a lot about Joseph. But we also find here another subtle fact, that is that he is of the house of David, the greatest king of Israel, with whom God made a special covenant. In fact, in Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 7, 13 to 14, we read about that covenant and we get some of the meat of it. It's where God promises David an offspring. And he says of him, verse 13, this offspring shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now this is a promise that Israel looked for and looked to uh, all throughout the Old Testament. It was never fulfilled. They never found the fulfillment of this promise. They awaited it. And here we find an heir of King David living in obscurity in Nazareth. Which I, I wonder if this is really, in, in some sense, uh, and this is a true story, so just to be clear, this really happened. This is history. But this also, I wonder, the way that God's working is, is giving his people a picture, a, a kind of metaphor for the hopes of Israel here. The fact that they feel obscure and not like the people whom God has created them to be and are wondering if the fulfillment of the promises will ever come. They feel forgotten. But God has not forgotten them. You know, Christmas reminds us of the day that silence from heaven was broken by the voice of God. Transcendence and eminence meet at Christmas. The heavenly touchdown on earth. Majesty visited obscurity. It was a picture of the way that God works. His power loves to come and display itself through the weakness of human frailty. And so here God comes in a manger, sending his son. You know, I love that even Zechariah's name, who the guy that the story kind of opens with, means God remembers. God remembers faithful, humble, unimpressive servants living in obscure places like Joseph and Mary. Now, I was struck the other day by uh, this story. You probably heard this. Jeff Bezos, there have been all these rich guys who have been like, hey, I don't know what to do with my money. Let's go to space. And, and Jeff Bezos uh, has his spaceship, Origin and uh, Blue Origin. He said, hey, you know what? Um, I think what would be cool is to send William Shatner from Star Trek actually to space. And he did. And then Elon Musk replied, like, that was a really cool idea. I wish I would have had that first. But it made sense to send William Shatner to heaven, right? Made sense. Like, he kind of had the role. He had the pedigree. But what I find interesting in this story is that while Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos probably would never even know the names of this Joseph and Mary or us, these are the kinds of people that the Lord loves to work in and through. I don't know who needs to hear this this Christmas season, but God still loves to work through the humble and obscure to bring about his greater glory. To show that his work in your life really is about something even more than you. It's about his glory and his name being made great. And we get to be part of that. We get to be drawn into that. 
But notice second that Mary is favored by God in verses 28 to 33. Uh, That really is uh, a point that Gabriel wants to highlight as he approaches Mary. You'll notice that Gabriel, in fact, calls Mary favored twice in these verses. Now, verse 28, if you look there, notice what he says. It says, and he came to her, speaking of Gabriel, and he says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, this word for favored here, it comes from uh, the same root for grace, but it's a, a unique kind of word in the way that it's used. In fact, uh, one commentator, Daryl Bach, he was speaking of this word, and he says, this word for favor signifies God's gracious choice of someone through whom God does something special. So the favor here that God is showing to Mary is actually speaking of a kind of role that he has for her, that she's going to be playing in his plan, and specifically, as we'll see, his plan of salvation for his people. See, Mary didn't earn God's favor. She clearly was a faithful, godly woman. We can read that from what follows. But God's grace is God's initiative, giving Mary this special role in the history of God's saving purposes. Notice he also says in verse 28 that the Lord is with you, which means God is for you. He is on Mary's side. But did you catch that in verse 29, Mary's response isn't one of, this is great, God's for me. Instead, it says she's greatly troubled. She's greatly troubled at the saying, and it says that she tried to discern what sort of greeting this may be. Well, didn't he say that you're favored? Didn't he just say that that you are a favored one through whom God is going to bring about his purposes, that the Lord is with you, that he's for you? Now, why is it that she's greatly troubled? Well, Gabriel just said that she's favored, that, he's, that God's for her, but I'm just speculating. I'm speculating as to why she's troubled. But for one, I think it's because it's not normal to get approached by a terrifying angel, right? Like if you're standing before this terrifying angel and you're trying to like get your wits about yourself, it's like, uh, what is happening? And perhaps second, maybe Mary's wondering how God's going to use her. You know, when, when God uses us, That use is not always easy. A lot of times it turns your life upside down. It means that you'll have to go through difficult things. And maybe Mary is processing what this means. That's why Gabriel goes on to explain the nature of the favor in verses 30 to 33. He says this. Look there with me. Verses 30 to 33. He says this. He says, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, so he's going to explain what this favor means. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, of his kingdom there will be no end. Now you'll notice that verse 31 uh, first outlines Mary's role. And he quickly says, here's the way the Lord's favor is going to work out on you. You're going to give birth to a son. His name is Jesus. Now, Luke doesn't explain what that name means, uh, but we know that it comes from the uh, Hebrew name for Joshua, which means God saves or Yahweh saves. She's going to give birth to him. 
But then as we get to verses 32 to 33, what he's doing is he's outlining the role and the mission of this son that she's going to give birth to. And what he says about this son is that, that he is going to be great. He begins with that. See, Jesus' future ministry is that he is going to be the Messiah, and he is great. And I believe what ha- is happening here is, once again, Luke is weaving in and out an explanation of who John the Baptist is and how Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. Uh, you'll remember that in Luke 1.15, we are told that John the Baptist was great in the eyes of the Lord. So he qualifies the greatness of John the Baptist. But here he says Jesus is great, period. No qualification. There is none like him. Robert Stein, uh, in his commentary, says that great here, he's, he's actually using this, functioning not as a name, but rather indicating his being and his nature. That, that Jesus does not have a nature merely like ours. He is both fully God and fully man. Now, some have argued here that evidence for reading great in this way is is really inconclusive. We can't be sure that this is what great means. But I do take it that as I read Luke's gospel, that he's doing something here. That while he might not be explicitly saying what he means by great, he is really laying out the lumber to build a case for, as he moves throughout his gospel, the unique nature of who Jesus is. And so he's in a lot of ways, as you follow Luke, he's this physician who is trying to give an orderly account of the nature of who Jesus is and and the things that he saw and that eyewitnesses saw. And he really is acting as he tells the gospel, uh, like, I don't know if you've ever seen um, uh, Sergeant Joe Friday, right, from Dragnet. But, But he was the guy who would always say, or he's famed for saying, all we want are the facts, ma'am. And what Luke is doing is he's laying out the facts of the things that happened about Jesus. And he's, as he's going, building a case, laying out more and more facts so that by the time that you get to the end of the gospel of Luke, we have people doing what? Worshiping Jesus as he ascends to heaven. Who do you worship? God. Do you worship anybody else? No. So we are getting to the place where we see the uniqueness of the nature of Jesus. And here, I believe this is an important picture that is developing what Luke is trying to create for us. See, he expects the facts, I believe, to speak for themselves. And Gabriel explains that Mary is favored and that she's giving birth to the spirit-anointed king or Messiah that God promised David in the Davidic covenant. See, son of the Most High, Most High is, is speaking of God, and so he is a son of God which in, in the New Testament and in biblical times was a description of earthly kings. Earthly kings, they imaged the God that they worshipped. And so here we find that this king or this man that she's giving birth to is going to be son of the Most High. He is going to be an earthly king. But you'll notice that Gabriel quickly sets Jesus in the context of the Davidic promises of Second Samuel. He speaks of David's throne an eternal reign over Israel, and an eternal kingdom. And I take it that this is laying out the lumber for the divinity of Jesus, even if Luke isn't labeling it yet. I mean, earthly kings were seen as sons of the Most High, but Jesus is the Son of God par excellence, 
Now, there is none like him. It is by virtue of his divinity that he is able to have this eternal reign. How's a king going to reign eternally if he doesn't have eternal life? And so we see this in the nature of the way that Jesus is described. It also, I believe, signals something unique about Jesus being that not only does he have eternal life, but he will be the one who is able ultimately to give eternal life. Now, here again, Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a prophet. But Jesus is the Messiah that prophets were looking forward to and promising would come. He is the the object of our faith, not just one who tells us about what to believe. We find that God's favoring of Mary speaks of him choosing her to give birth to the long-awaited Messiah. Now, here's what's interesting. If you've read Matthew's gospel, Matthew makes it really clear that the birth of Jesus to a virgin is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7. But Luke doesn't talk about that here. Now, I don't think that it means that Luke didn't understand this to be fulfillment of the prophecy. I think he likely has this in mind. But even if he does have it in mind, He does not direct the listener's attention to it like Matthew. Instead, what Luke does is explain that Jesus' birth distinguishes him from all other miraculous births and that his birth points to his unique nature. Luke doesn't want us to distract us from that. He says there have been a lot of miraculous births throughout the Bible. And John the Baptist is yet another miraculous birth. But there's a real sense in which all of those are culminating and climaxing in a yet greater miracle, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. In fact, I think that's really the way that Luke develops the climax of the story with this question that Mary asks in verse 34. You'll notice, third, the virgin will give birth to God's son in verses 34 to 38. Now, I'm sure Mary thought there has to be a catch. You're telling me that my role is to give birth to the Savior, but I'm a virgin. Well, notice verse 34. She asks this question. Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Uh, here's something that you might not see in the English. This phrase here for I am a virgin, it's, it's different than the word that's used above twice. Uh, here, it's, it's actually translating a phrase I have not known a man, which is a euphemism for someone that hasn't engaged in sexual relations before. I think the reason that Luke does this is that he is going to great pains to clarify the problem. He wants future and current readers to know Mary has not had sexual relations. She really is biologically, physically a virgin. Now, the biology, it it just doesn't work here. There must be something else that's happening. And Gabriel explains what that something else is in verses 35 to 37. Look there with me. This is, again, what, what he says. And the angel answered Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. 
for nothing will be impossible with God. Now, the fact that Mary will give birth as a virgin excludes the idea that the Holy Spirit coming upon you carries any kind of sexual connotation to it. So here what we see is this life is connected to God's creative power on display. His powerful presence results in life springing up. Now, Daryl Bach understands this powerful, uh, this power of God to speak of the creative power of God, God's act of Holy Spirit, an act of life-giving agent that is taking place in Mary. Holy Spirit is bringing about life in her. Uh, the power of the Most High speaks of the presence and creative power of God. And it's hard not to see the Most High will overshadow you is not reminding you of things in the Old Testament. I mean, when you think about the creative work of the Holy Spirit, doesn't it remind you of like Genesis 1-2, where the, the Spirit is fluttering or, or hovering over the waters? Well, that might be so, but the only real clear connection we see as to what's going on here, and the way that this word for overshadowing is used elsewhere is actually used in the tabernacle. In fact, overshadowing is describing in Exodus 34, 35, that Shekinah glory cloud that rested over the tabernacle. It, it signified God's presence with and for God's people. It was God with his people. See, Luke only uses the word for overshadowing once more in his whole letter in the Gospel of Luke. And we find that at the Transfiguration in Luke 9, 34. Uh, that's where a, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And God spoke from the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. In other words, that, that cloud represented the presence of God and it displayed the relationship of the Father to the Son. Now, interestingly, this is where God revealed his glory, which appears to be at the transfiguration. Jesus revealed his glory, and it, and it appears to be that he's actually giving people a picture of his divinity, of the glory of the Father, the glory of God himself. But did you catch that God gives Mary a sign, even though she didn't ask for one? She doesn't ask for a sign, Zechariah did. Uh, that's why he couldn't talk anymore. But Mary didn't ask for one. God gave, him, gave her one anyway. The miracle of John's birth will show that, that nothing is impossible with God, which only prepares the way for the greater miracle of Jesus' birth. If we've shown you that, if God has shown you that nothing is impossible with God through John's birth, then how much more will God accomplish through Jesus? See, John was born of a barren woman beyond the childbearing years, but Jesus was born of a virgin by an utterly unique creative work of God. Catch this, the narrative does not make sense if something more miraculous is not happening to Jesus than what happened to John the Baptist. And the only explanation is that he was actually born of a virgin. So John's a prophet, Jesus is the Messiah. John is the greatest man born of a woman. Jesus is greater not only by his humanity, but by his true, true divinity. Now let me close with a couple of observations and some applications. First, the double miracle of Luke 1 points to Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. But John is joining a long list of important Old Testament men born of barren women like Isaac, Samuel, and Samson. 
So here, there's a real sense in which Luke demonstrates that all miraculous births of the past only prepared the way for the greater miracle of Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus is the offspring promised to Eve, who would crush the head of the serpent and free humanity from bondage to sin and God's wrath in Genesis 3.15. He is the child that was promised to Abraham, who would have kings come from him, who would be a blessing to the nations. He's the fulfillment of that promised offspring to King David in 2 Samuel 7. So Jesus really here, we find, stands at the center of God's redemptive purposes for humanity. And it makes sense that his entrance would be without replication or equal. So Luke says the virgin birth shows all of this. And second, second observation quickly is that Luke explains that Jesus is uniquely God's son with no biological earthly father. He's adopted by Joseph of the house of David and a full heir to the promises, but not biologically, through adoption. So, so how do we apply something like this? Well, let me just remind you again. Uh, some applications are about things you can do. Some applications are about ways that you believe, and I believe that we have some of both in our text here this morning. First, just for our local church, Trinity Bible Church, let us be reminded that we as a congregation need to protect and promote this doctrine, the, the doctrine of the virgin birth. And Trinity Bible Church believes that Jesus was actually born by the special creative act of the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary's womb. Our statement of, earth, uh, statement of faith affirms this. Uh, there, you'll remember that we say we believe in the eternal Son of God the second person of the Trinity who took on human nature when the Holy Spirit overshadowed the Virgin Mary, causing her to conceive and give birth to Jesus Christ, who uniquely was both fully God and fully man. We don't believe the virgin birth is a misreading of the text. We don't believe that the virgin birth is a metaphor for some grander reality. We don't think it's a cover-up for Mary's unlawful birth with Joseph or some centurion. No, this is historic Christianity espoused by Matthew, by Luke, and, and that's enough. But what's profound, you might not realize this, but we have lots of extra biblical attestation to the reality of the virgin birth. In fact, if you look at the first and second centuries, we have all kinds of people who are pointing to the virgin birth as fundamental and critical to Christianity. Now, if you were to go and study history, take a history class, uh, you would find that Justin Martyr, Ignatius, and Irenaeus, just in the, the second century, were all fighting for the fundamentals of the faith, and they put the virgin birth as part of those fundamental uh, beliefs that Christians had. Ignatius, who was martyred no later than 117 AD, said it is one of the mysteries that should be shouted aloud. It is amazing. It is a miracle that the Son of God took on human flesh through the Virgin Mary. It's not something that we should hide or cover up. It's something that we should actually herald. Pastor Mal, uh, he, he's been teaching through a, a class recently, this last fall, on the Apostles' Creed, which is really a, a statement that comes from, I, I guess, about 150 AD. You can ask him later about this. But in that statement, we find an early expression of what we believe the Apostles taught during the first century. What are the fundamentals of the faith? And in this Apostles' Creed, we find this statement, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, 
our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The virgin birth is one of those truths that we need to protect and promote. Second, and this is kind of related to it, the virgin birth is a non-negotiable of true Christianity. It's a non-negotiable of true Christianity. Uh, now, you, you might remember a few years ago, uh, in 2011, John Piper sent out a famous tweet. Farewell, Rob Bell. Now, the reason that he sent this tweet out is because Rob Bell has just written his book on hell. Now, Piper explained that his main problem with the book was not necessarily his explanation of hell, but his denial of penal substitution in that book. Now, I, I agree with him, but I would say that the tweet might have been a little bit late. Now, here's what I mean by this. That book was written in 2011, but he had already denied the virgin birth in Velvet Elvis back in 2005. And so if I'm understanding the nature of true biblical Christianity, uh, he had already left the reservation. Does that make sense? Like, and, and what we'll find is, is that often you'll find someone denying first the virgin birth as sort of a, a tester, and then you'll notice that like what follows is a denial of all, all kinds of other fundamental uh, beliefs of the faith. So we need to re remind ourselves that it is important to believe in the virgin birth. Now, if you're a young Christian and you're thinking to yourself, I didn't know the virgin birth was such a big deal until like right now. Does that mean that I wasn't a Christian, but now I need to become a Christian? Uh, I would just encourage you. Um, our statement of faith says it. So if you remember the church, you've been taught through that. So you should believe that. Um, but I would also say there are all kinds of things that you're going to be maturing in your faith and learning. And the real question is not whether or not you have perfect theology right now. The real question is, how do you respond when you come to the Word of God and you find things that you did not know, things that might even be hard to believe? Are you going to trust your own ability to reason, or are you going to trust what the Word of God says? So I just encourage you, trust the Word of God here. If this is still hard for you, talk to another mature Christian who can walk with you through the importance of this doctrine. But notice for now that Luke says Jesus was born of a virgin. The Word of God says it, it must be true. Third, Christian, don't add to or take away from the virgin birth. People do this all the time. Things get really weird in the ways that they will try to add to what the virgin birth means or take away from. We see this all over the place. You know, de denying the virgin birth is rarely a heresy that parties alone. Does that image make sense? Like when, when the virgin birth deniers go out and hang out, they usually bring along other heresies with them. Like, I don't believe that we really needed Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. I don't think I really believe in things like miracles, like all kinds of friends party together. And we need to make sure that we're protecting the clarity of the teaching on this. There are usually other heresies that keep company together. So, for instance, the Catholic Church adds to the virgin birth saying that Mary was perpetually a virgin. They, they read it and they say she was always a virgin. That means that she never had relations with Joseph even though we read that Jesus did have siblings really clearly in the scriptures, which gets kind of weird. But then they take it further. Uh, you've probably heard of a, a church like the Church of the Immaculate Conception. And you thought like, oh yeah, I believe in the Immaculate Conception. Jesus was born miraculously. That's not what they mean. They mean that Mary was a virgin, born of a virgin. So now you can see how this starts to trace out, but they don't stop there. In fact, uh, you'll find that uh, many places, Poland, Central America, 
Um, uh, I, I was reading uh, the other day Guadalupe, France. All kinds of people have actually turned to worshiping Mary as God, seeing her equal with the Son, and sometimes even above the Son. Now, the reason that this is important is we need to be mindful of the way that we can take a good doctrine and add to it, and it become heresy real quick. We need to be careful in our doctrine. Uh, others take away from the virgin birth. You'll remember the Arians, uh, they were early adopters of adoptionism. They believed that Christ was created by God in a lesser God. They claimed that Jesus was adopted as the Son of God at his baptism. You remember when the, the Spirit descends as a dove? They say, oh, see, Jesus didn't have the, the Spirit yet. That's where Jesus was anointed as king. He, he always had the Spirit. He was born of a virgin with the Holy Spirit. He was always fully God. There was not a time when he was not God. Modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses believe the same thing. The Arian heresy of the past. And this really takes away from the reality of the eternal Son of God taking on flesh in the Virgin Mary. More recently, there are liberals like John Shelby Spong who denies all miracles. He hates the idea of the crazy thought that, uh, that Mary had uh, a virgin birth probably to cover up some sin, and what a horrible thought of a God that requires uh, a sacrifice to satisfy his wrath on sin. Uh, Marcus Borg, another liberal, sees it as a metaphor. We could go on and on all day about the ways that we can get crazy about the virgin birth and miss it and miss God. But the virgin birth really is kind of a faith shibboleth. It's a faith shibboleth that separates true believers from those who don't believe in the biblical Jesus. And once you cross the line, there's no telling where you're going to end up. Fourth, the virgin birth speaks to Jesus' unique nature. Jesus is the last Adam. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 to 47, is talking about the meaning of the resurrection. But in that, he says, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Now there he's speaking of the importance of the resurrection of Jesus. But as Romans 3 demonstrates, every single human born in Adam is born into sin, with a sin nature. We, we sinned against God with Adam. We inherited his sin nature. That's evidenced by the reality that every human dies. Now, because Jesus was literally born of a virgin by a powerful creative act of God and is both fully divine and fully human, he is uniquely able to save people from sin, death, the devil, and the wrath of God. So Jesus is the last Adam in the sense that while death came through Adam, those who put their faith in the last Adam receive eternal life that only he can give. So the virgin birth explains how Jesus was born without that sin nature from Adam. He entered in from the outside to rescue us who are trapped under sin. It also explains how he is fully God and fully man. Now here's what that means. Jesus is not merely a prophet like John the Baptist. He doesn't claim to be a mere prophet like Muhammad or Joseph Smith does. Jesus didn't come and say, I am a way to God like the Hindus. No, Jesus comes and says, if you understand my unique nature, 
which is evidenced by the virgin birth and the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, then what you will understand is, is I came as the eternal Son of God who took on flesh and tabernacled amongst all humans as the new and better Adam, the last Adam to give life and hope is the only way to peace with God. There's no other way. There's none like Jesus. There is none who is fully God and fully man. There is none that makes the claims that Jesus makes. The only way to approach Jesus is to receive all that he says he is, and he says, I am like no other. Fifth, if you're this morning, you're here, and you're a non-Christian, I want you to know that God gave his eternal son the name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. You know, the miracle of the cradle that we're speaking of this morning, ultimately led to the miracle of the cross. I, I like N.T. Wright's comment here. I don't like everything he says, but this is helpful. He says, really, if you believe in miracles, you believe in Jesus' miraculous birth. If you don't, you don't. If you believe the Bible is true, you will believe in the birth stories. If you don't, you won't. So the virgin birth still proclaims to us this morning, and to you if you're a non-Christian, that nothing is impossible with God, that there is hope, that there is a future, that the world looks hopeless, but that God has entered in to give you hope where there was no hope. Now, I really believe this morning that if you're here and you're a non-Christian, you might not even want to say it out loud, but I believe in your heart of hearts that you want to believe that that's true. I believe you want to dare to believe that you were created for something more than this broken, horrific world, and that your creator also so loved you, even in your sin and rebellion, that he would send his son to come and save you because you can't save yourself. I think you want to believe that. Let me encourage you. Believe today. Put your faith in Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who took on flesh, was born of a Virgin Mary, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death on the cross and was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven to declare that you can have eternal life because of who Jesus is. Start living for him today. If that's you, talk to me before you leave. Don't leave without putting your faith in Jesus Christ and talking to me about it. But let's go to the Lord now and pray as we prepare to sing and worship God some more. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we come before you, we praise you that you are our great king that you have sent your Son to rescue and save sinners. Father, we praise you that you've shown your power and weakness, and the weakness of the eternal Son of God taking on flesh in an infant and a baby, and then ultimately going to the cross to display your power and weakness where he was sacrificed willingly on our behalf to bring us to you. Lord, if there's someone here today that does not know your grace, who has not been saved, who has not put their faith in that Son, Jesus Christ, Father, I pray that you would awaken them, that they would look to you, that they would believe, and that you would save them. It's your name we do pray. Amen.